Revolution I can't get no call to action But I try and I try and I try Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Jane Evans, a radical woman and trailblazer of important, genuine firsts. Jane worked for some of the biggest agencies on the planet, including JWT and Ogilvy, before setting up her own agency, Giant Leap, where clients included Revlon, Maserati and a bevy of beer breweries. She now runs Janie, part advertising agency, part activist organisation that communicates to and represents the most powerful consumer group on the planet, women over 50. Their first campaign is Uninvisibility, to bring these new superwomen into the spotlight. Jane says, if the ad industry can't see the disruptive power of employing a gobby older woman, then I'll profit from my voice myself. Welcome to the show, Jane. Hello. <laughs> Seven quickfire questions. Mac or PC? Mac. London or Sydney? Both. English ales or Aussie tinnies? Neither. Cindy Lauper or Cindy Gallup? Cindy Gallup. Martin Scorsese or Martin Sorrell? Oh, Scorsese every time. (laughs) Machine learning or on-the-job learning? Both. And lastly, John Evans or Jane Evans? Both. Both. Okay, cool. (laughs) Awesome. Okay, so Jane, um, can you tell me what your first ever job was and what your first advertising job was? And the reason I ask is I know so many people, typically young nephews and nieces of mine, who are anxious about the perceived right way of doing things and the more I talk to people who have made a name for themselves in the industry the more I believe my advice to them of there being no right way is 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 correct. I couldn't agree more Um, and the more people we get from diverse backgrounds the better. Um, My first job was actually my first business. Um, I my father had dreams of me being a professional golfer um, and the first time he took me to play golf, by the ninth hole, I was bored stupid. Um, and I saw a little hut there and I went, what's that? And he was like, oh, it's a hut they used to sell sweets and drinks to the golfers. And I went, can I do that? And he went to the club and uh, got permission for me to have the hut. And my mum went down to the cash and carry. Um, and I set up my first business when I was 12 years old. Really? <laughs> you legend. <laughs> and what was that like? Um, oh, look, my parents didn't realise how much money I was making. Um, and in fact, my mum took, took over the business when she realised how much money I was making. <laughs> and I was the only kid at school that could afford 20 fag- fags a day. So <laughs> That puts you in a powerful place, as we all know. It was. Plus the fact I spent all of my Saturdays and Sundays sitting in a wooden hut eating chocolate. Wow. Amazing. And so, so how long did you get away with that for till your mum... Took over the franchise. I, 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 it took about a year till she worked out just how much money was in it and that she could do it on a Tuesday on Ladies' Day too. Um, 
And yeah, what she didn't realize was that I'd I'd worked out that I got a lot more money in winter if I put like sherry or whiskey in in the coffee. <laughs> so I was, awesome. I was making a lot of money from 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 being a highly illegal <laughs> <laughs> enterprise. Oh, that's brilliant. Oh, I love that. Yep. So, um, so yes, yeah, so that was my first job. Um, and then I got into, I had quite a number of ridiculous jobs after that. Um, again, I, I worked in a smoker's shop um, and I worked in a DIY store, like one of the big, one of the first big supermarket ones. Um, and then, but I always wanted to get into advertising since I was like 12 years old and going to the, um, into London, I'd see the tubes posters and go, I want to make those. That's what I want to do. Um, so at 16, I went to art college and at 20, I got my first job at Liga Stellani. Ah, cool. And what were you doing there? I was a junior art director. Good old days when you just went straight from college and went into a paid job. <laughs> well, don't boast now. And, and, um, and so was that everything you hoped it would be when you were, from when you were a young girl looking at the posters in the tube? Oh, it was an incredible time. My first few years in London were amazing, um, but also highly stressful and, you know, incredibly competitive. And, um, you know, for a very young woman, it was um, all consuming. I imagine there was there was little divide between work life and, and you know, personal life. It wasn't so much of it wasn't so much physically the time. I mean, we we, we worked hard, but I don't. I you know I hear horror, horror stories today of what people work like. Um, I think there was a much better play work balance. Um, and um, but the thing is, is you know, and particularly when you're young in the industry, your head's in it all the time, regardless of what you're doing. If you've got a brief that you've got to crack, um, you know, it's in your head. You you, you can't get it out. Um, and you know, the, when you're younger in the industry, it takes longer to get them out of your head. When you're older, you know, you can crack things a bit quicker, so they're not dangling around in there forever. Yeah, I think that process becomes easier, doesn't it? It does. Well, you just learn what to knock out immediately. Whereas, you know, when you're younger in the business, <clears throat> you have to explore every idea because you don't actually really know what a good idea is. It's like you have, to, you have to sort of luck onto them until you go, all oh, right, okay, I'm starting to see the pattern of this. I'm starting to see the rhythm of this. I'm starting to get like other people's reactions to this. Yeah. And, and from certainly from my own experience, you have to make lots of mistakes and you can't do that overnight. You need time to make lots and lots of mistakes and learn from them. I think life is, that's, that's you know, life. You've got to, you, you know, you're not living if you're not making a shit ton of mistakes, I don't reckon. No, I fully agree. hundred percent, hundred percent. So how did you end up working in Australia then? So obviously Ligas Delaney was, was awesome in, in, for many reasons, but ultimately that came to an end. Can you tell us the story around that? Um, I then went on to um, KHBB, um, which was, I had actually had a female creative director and that was absolutely fantastic. Um, but as usual, or as seemed to be the case in my career, was new creative directors came in, and the first team that went was the girl team because you you could be the girl team, but they had to pick you. <laughs> ah, okay. Um, so we we left there, and I had a job offer in London, and I also had a headhunter that was saying come out to Sydney. Um, and because we'd had a female creative director, she'd actually put our pay up into parity with the boys. Um, mm. so, but the problem was, was that the next job didn't want to pay parity with the boys. So it, I was offered half as much in London. 
and twice as much in Sydney. And so twice as much in sunshine, one out. And um, excuse my ignorance, but in terms of being offered half as half as much in London, how was that? How was that? Um, how was that kind of framed? I mean, was it as blunt it as that? It, it or was it, is it... No, it wasn't. I mean, it was never framed as that, but ex- except from like uh, you know the creative director that gave us the pay, the, the pay rise because she just you know she basically said I've just looked at all the pay, yeah, and you're only paid half of what the guys are. So I'm immediately putting your pay up to what the guys are. But then when I go out into the market, it was like I was told I would not be able to expect such a high grade of pay again. So it was never said because you're a girl, because it never has been. But, um, you know, it's the the pay gap has been real for a very, very long time. Oh, I believe you. No, I, I fully believe you. I just wondered, um, I wondered how, how people justify it in general whether we're looking historically or modern day I just... look if I hadn't had a female creative director I would have never have had my wages on par and I wouldn't have known sure so the only reason I knew that my wages was on par was because an older woman had told me I'd made it put it right well well good on her really so um Sydney tell me about Sydney what were the conditions like in Sydney for you Sydney was absolutely fantastic to begin with um the late 80s um, to the mid nineties in Australia was absolutely incredible, and d- had more female creatives than London ever had. It was like in, in, when I worked at Ogilvy in in nineteen ninety, it was actually almost fifty fifty, male and female in the creative department. Um, it was a, an absolutely fantastic time. We were valued, you know, we were really living sort of the rock star life, um, and then the recession we had to have came in, and all the blokes came in and I don't know something got really lost it took a mm. it took a it, the industry took a completely different direction and I think you can almost put it down to the day that Martin Sorrell you know took over and you know creativity was you know put on the back burner and and I think what happened as well is is we used it used to be us that used to be the awards we used to be the valuable thing that you know agencies would vie to get us and i think it absolutely turned around from that point of view in as much as you know agencies you know we were lucky if we were we got a job and i think that was a really massive shift we went to being from being you know the stars to a commodity the um gender balance was much more what it should be in Sydney. How else did how else did, did it differ? Um, the, the, I think the re, one of the reasons why Australian creatives are, are, are really quite successful around the world is is because agencies are smaller, but they're still really good quality. So mm. you don't get stuck in the creative department and only ever see creative people. You're sort of smack bang in the middle of of it all. So you know you become a really good all rounder. You spend a lot of time with planners. You spend a lot more time with media. You spend a lot more time with the suits. So I. I think as you know, a, a, an Australian creative gets a much greater view of the business as a whole rather than just their bit, which is, you know, writing or making the ads. Yeah, yeah, true. My um, my older brother, in fact, he kind of built his career from Sydney, I guess, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago, maybe. So um, Andrew, he felt certainly in Sydney is that people just had more balls, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. 
Oh, look, the, uh, when I was moving over there, my dad was like, oh, you'll do so much better over there because you'll be actually be able to speak your mind. Yeah, exactly um, that. And I think, yes, uh, there's uh, there's very much far more you're able to, you know, I, I mean, we used to joke that, you know, Australians call a spade a fucking shovel. Yeah. <laughs> exactly that. Yeah. That must have felt like a much more uh, comfortable place to exist in. Oh, for, for, for a gobby bitch, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. For a gobby bitch, exactly that. <laughs> Is that empowering? It, it, it was very empowering. However, um, it made me incredibly threatening. Um, and, um, you know, both, both me and my, my copywriter, Jane Caro, were very vocal feminists. And we'd both basically, you know, I, I was the one that wanted to be a creative director. Um, and basically all the way along and gone, what do I need to do next? What do I need to do next? What do I need to do next? And it, you know, got to the point where it was like, oh, well, you know, you've got to have won awards. Okay, here's an armful. What else do I need to do? It was like, we need to show that you can run an apartment. It was like, well, there it is. It was like, um, you know, I ran award school. I was on the award committee. It was like, I, I did everything that you're supposed to be to do to be a creative director. And, you know, it got, it got to the point in the end where the headhunter who, you know, has been my headhunter for life and I absolutely adore her took me and Jane Cairo out for lunch and said, listen, the boys have decided there is never going to be a female creative director in, in Sydney, so just forget it. You know, it was like being strident and, you know, and, and again, you know, I, I did a lot of work for women at the time. I brought together a group called Creative Opportunities for Women, which is COW. Um, I ran award school and ensured that it was like blind judging um, and I managed to get um, three women in the first year and the top 12 and the second year I managed to get five women in the top 12. Wow. So, you know, I'd been very vocal about keeping up the, the, the amount of women that were in the industry. But unfortunately, you know, as you can see from the Leo De, the Burnett debacle a couple of years ago, whoever I brought in got disappeared. And, you know, there was a massive disappearing of women in the industry in like the early 2000s. And did you find, going back to the point about being more naturally suited to uh, Sydney and just being in that environment and culture, did it make it easier for that and your personality creep into your, your work? You know, the very famous Drive washing powder campaign uh, that you're behind was the first campaign that ever showed an unmarried couple living together and, you know, guys doing laundry and all of that kind and of... And the first divorce couple ever shown on TV too. Um, that came from, uh, uh, you know, this is a great plug for the Uninvisibility Project, but this came from, uh, again, another mature woman fighting for us. Um, there was, a, the, the client was at Unilever. She was 55 years old. She was about to resign. And she went, oh my God, for the first time ever in the whole of my career, I've actually got a senior female creative team. And she went, the brief is, don't give me two cunts in a kitchen. <laughs> well, you didn't do that. No. And and we, 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 I think it took nine months to get the campaign approved and through all of you know, Unilever's hoops. Uh, but it ended up winning the Unilever Grand Prix. So, you know, it was, it was worth all the fights with the clients. <laughs> of course. And so, I mean, there's various reasons why it, it worked and why it was so uh, effective and successful and rightfully won awards. So why, why do you think it worked? Um, well, first of all, at the time, we weren't actually allowed to say that it was the first ever ad with a divorced couple or an unmarried couple or the guys were doing you know, the washing. We weren't actually allowed to PR that at all. We just had to let it go out there on its own uh, volition. Um, but it was remade around the world, <clears throat> which, you know, from somebody that started her career in London to then get one of her ads remade out of London was quite a quite a sort of, yeah, that, that, that was a nice moment. <laughs> And did they do it justice? No, 
Um, in in um, in the UK, they made it the brother that did the washing rather than the flatmate uh, because nobody wanted to see, you know, they could be gay. Um, and in South and in South America, they made it the mum that did the washing, which we could have fucking killed them. Um, and when it went to judging at Khan, um, apparently the South Americans claim that theirs was the original. Really, <laughs> the, that was that was my introduction to global advertising, and uh, yeah, yeah, and how sterile it can become. Yeah, and also, but I also think it was like because there weren't a couple of gobby bitches that were fighting at every single point. I mean, it was you know, trust me, over the nine months that we had that campaign, there were people throughout Unilever that were desperately trying to get it to make it to be the mum that did the washing, or you know. Do they have mm. to be divorced? And you know, can we put a wedding ring on her? <laughs> and, and you know, yeah. so it was a lot. It was a lot of saying no. And I, I went to a future of advertising thing last year, and uh, you know, somebody said that apparently, you know, agents agencies aren't allowed to say no to their clients anymore. And I was like, I don't think I could do my job if I couldn't say no to a client. <laughs> It's sad. It's a point I've made previously that the agencies, largely speaking anyway, seem to have become a kind of nan type figure to their clients where they just say, yes, dear, everything's great. Where we're really, I mean, the best metaphor I could think of, you need to be more like a personal trainer where you make them feel uncomfortable and you challenge them to just get better bit by bit. But also I think, you know, I think that a lot of what's been lost has been like the, the creative star team. Um, because you you actually had some real clout with that and some real power because the clients were always a bit afraid of the creative team because they knew that they were going they knew that you were going to fight to the death for your idea and you know I, and i just for me it's like it seems that that was like a boxing match it was pugilism it was that's actually made selling ads a lot of fun and everybody enjoyed the process because they knew that Actually, everybody was on the same side, and that. And again, it was like before awards meant everything. It was like we were actually working for our own portfolios and our own reputations. We weren't, you know, we didn't need pieces of gold. It was more like we've got to move our careers forward, and we've also got to do work that stands up for who we are and what we believe in. There's, you know, we always used to say there's no point in having women in advertising agencies if you don't let us fucking speak. And do you think that campaign, um, aside from the topics which were, you know, a lot of them probably taboo at the time, did it also work in part just because it was different to what everyone was seeing everywhere else? Um, no, it worked because there were actually really fucking good product demonstrations. It was like, you know, ultimately... You know, I, I mean, it was interesting. I, I was writing an article and I was looking at the world's, you know, all of the world's uh, best ads. And I came to the conclusion that actually every single one of them was a product demonstration. It was like it may be an abstract product demonstration, but, you know, the Guinness, the Guinness um, horses – that's a product demonstration of pouring Guinness. You know, the the, mm. the Cadbury drummer is, that's a de product demonstration of the joy of eating chocolate. And, you know, I think, again, modern advertising has forgotten about the product needs to be at the absolute heart of it. So, yes, it was the first ad with divorced women and, you know, with the divorced couple, but the whole story was about the fact that, you know, he was, he was trying to work out how she got her clothes so clean because he had to start washing and she couldn't believe the fact that he'd actually fucking started washing. <laughs> <laughs> so why did you leave mainstream agencies then to start your own agency jointly? Well, two reasons. First of all, I knew that I couldn't, there was no way that I could carry on with the job that I had um, and have children. Um, 
and and also I'd been taken out by the head like the headhunter and told that there was never going to be a female creative director. So I was like, well, yeah. if I want a family and I want to be a creative director, I'm going to have to do it myself. So I bought a two and a half thousand square meter warehouse, built the agency downstairs, and lived upstairs. And and how hard was it to set that up? Um, it 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 wasn't actually as hard. Setting it up was actually really very easy. In fact, probably too easy. Um, I'd been consulting with a group called the Principles, where we'd created this new craft beer. Um, and by the time I'd set up my agency, I'd I'd left consulting them and had set up the agency. And so you know, the brewery was like, "Well, we want to come with you because it was your idea, and you know, you're the creative." So, so that one was. So most of the business just actually walked into the door. It was really quite sort of. It was really quite amazing. Um, and for the first two to three years, it was. I mean, we were on such a trajectory; it was unbelievable. Um, and I think in two thousand and one, we were the nineteenth most awarded in South Pacific region. And the only independent on the list. Uh, we, you know, we were winning awards. We had great accounts. You know, um, James Squire was, you know, doubled every single year, and it's now, you know, the biggest craft beer in Australia. So, you know, it was flying high. We ha- I had a group of six people working there. We had really cool offices, but I was in an abusive relationship and found that my property empire was actually just a mortgage empire, and he was the one that had the property empire because he'd put his name on all the titles. And once he was found out, it became abusive and I had to get my children out of there. So, you know, it was like all of a sudden went from, you know, building the world's greatest advertising agency was not the most important thing in my life. Um, And so I basically scaled down the agency and for the next 10 years basically became the, the beer goddess. So, you know, I, I worked from from a stable block out of a smaller house. Um, you know, the staff went down to two. Um, and, you know, I just basically did beer after beer after beer after beer and I got bored of it. <laughs> yeah, and you did all that whilst being a mum, a super mum by the sound of it. Whilst being a mum, yeah. So, um, yeah, it was – look, my, my, my youngest – turns 18 next Thursday and on Saturday night I'm, I'm having I can't believe I didn't fucking kill them chicken dinner <laughs> <laughs> turning 18 my god that sounds equally amazing and terrifying so let's move on to you touched on the uninvisibility projects as a very brief plug earlier and I of course mentioned it in the intro so can we talk about the importance of women over 50 as as both creatives and consumers Okay. Um, as consumers, really, the, the, the statistic that women over 50 by 47% of everything is, there's, there's no other argument for it. It's like, you know, <laughs> we are the biggest, most powerful consumer group on the planet. And, and if you're not talking to us, you're ridiculous. I, again, when I came back from Australia, I was brought up by Bauer Media, um, and they've just done some research called Defiant Women, where they researched, I think, something like 1,400 women across Australia and defined this new demographic of women 50 to 64. And you know, in the, in the research, they asked for any brands that these women related to, and it was like none came up, not one. Not one at all. And in the end, you know, the final slide when they put up is, is, you know, you've ignored her for so long that she really doesn't give a shit about you. Um, so, you know, it, and, and, and to, to, to talk to us now, um, because we've been ignored for so long, um, is you really are going to need some really clever copy older women to do it because, you know, it was like we can spot anything written by, by somebody younger a mile off. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, there's a, there's a great quote of yours, which I discovered, which was, we've been your age, but you've never been ours. Oh, that was one of my grandmother's one. My, my grandmother was, was a, an amazing woman and she, she was full of full of those sort of quotes, but that one always stuck with me. Yeah, I think the industry is just obsessed with, I don't know, 20 under 20, 30 under 30 lists. Oh, who, who cares about a list? You know, everybody seems to be wanting to be on a list and everybody seems to want to win an award. And it was like, doesn't anybody actually want to build a re- rewarding career? It was like, you know, I, 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 it feels as though everybody's sort of been, it, I, I don't know, coming back, it sort of looks like this sort of advertising's turned into this dystopian nightmare. <laughs> It is. It's terrifying. And, it, and and there's parallels to my intro question about doing things the right way. It's like people need to be on a, a stupid 30 under 30 list that someone like the Drummel campaign has issued for them to feel like there's some kind of justification for their life. And you just think, just do some fucking good work. Just cause some problems. Just do something. Just live. Yeah. It was like, because the only person that cares about that list is you. And it'll get you a couple of mentions on LinkedIn a couple of times, but it's not really going to do anything. Um, and the thing that amazes me is, is that, and I keep on hearing this from the industry over and over again, is, is like, you know, oh, your, your, your brutal honesty is so refreshing. And I'm like, well, hold on a minute. When did we stop being brutally honest? I thought that was like the whole point of what we do. Why is it such a shock that I'm coming out there telling you how it is? <laughs> but, but it's true, though. It's true. And it's sad. I, um, I had the real pleasure of talking to uh, a good friend of yours, Cindy Gallup, recently. And, of course, her mantra of liking to blow shit up. And I asked her, have you felt that urge to blow things up grows with age? And I said that from my own, you know, white middle-aged perspective, which is the older I get, the less I give a shit and the more I do find myself being brutally honest. So I'm not trying to justify people not being brutally honest, but equally I do find myself increasingly frustrated with things and being allowed to call them out or allowing myself to call them out, I should say. Look, every single woman I know that's got, got gone on to the other side of menopause says they just get this couldn't give a fuckery. I really couldn't give a fuckery. Well, I think, I think my wonderful wife, Sophie, must have had the menopause at 20. And you'd love her, actually. You'd get on great. Oh, she sounds, she sounds absolutely amazing. Um, and, you know, and I think, I think, again, you know, it was like we've been through so much and we've been through so many fights and there just seems to be this complacency that's come over the industry over the last 20 years. And, you know, it just feels like, come on, wake up. Come on. <laughs> it's not actually getting any better. When I hear, It breaks my heart when I hear young girls, you know, talk about that they're still being bullied. Um, you know, it was like because, I mean, I mean, most of the women I know are under gag orders, but we all know their stories. And, you know, it was like we have some horror stories and so you know it was like to 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 then find out that that young women in the industry they're not having the horror stories that we have but it's still the same underlying misogyny and bullying it's you know is it you know i think it's gone from sexual harassment to bullying um and it's it's just you know uh, it, it's it's heartbreaking that it's still, you know, and, you know, people sort of say to me, for me, it's not that I've got more radical with age. It's the fact that I've actually run out of fucking patience. Like, you know, I was 13 years old when Equal Opportunity came in. I was like, you know, the first kids that could choose what they wanted to do and you could actually choose your career. And, you know, all of a sudden, like the world had opened wide up to me. 
And, you know, here we are 44 years later and it really doesn't fit. You know, women are still saying that they're, they're not feeling as though they, the, the workplace is working for them. Yeah, and as you say, women over 50 find it practically, if not completely impossible, to get a job in uh, agency world or advertising world. It, 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 it's, it's, it, it goes much, much further than advertising. It's actually systemic throughout society. Um, you know, it was, I mean, again, one of the things of doing the Uninvisibility Project, I mean, I, I started it off, I thought it was going to be like a Humans of New York type thing, like take a great photo of a great woman, write a little story, and we just keep doing that, and that would be a bit of fun. But within like a few days of starting it, the stories that came in and the women that connected, it was obvious that this wasn't, this was actually going to be a movement that there needed to be an overarching narrative for this group of women. Because I think people have, you know, I think this, I think society just expected us to disappear like old ladies of old. But the fact of the matter is, is we've been gifted with 30 years of extra life and it's in the middle. And so the world has never actually seen women like us before. We're the most educated we've ever been. We're the first group that went into the workforce en masse. Um, you know, it's like we're healthier than we've ever been. We look 20 years younger than our mothers did at this mm. age. Uh, you know, we're having our children later. So, you know, we're, we're mothering until our 60s now. So, but everybody's sort of still basing us on this age old paradigm that once a woman hits 50, and, you know, to be honest, is unfuckable to men, um, is we're supposed to, you know, gracefully bow away from the stage. And we're all going, we've still got half a life to live. Um, and nobody's pioneered this second half of our careers. And so, you know, uninvisibility is, is is really about, you know, come on, the women that are leading lead and the women, you know, and, and the women that are feeling disenfranchised, you're not alone because, again, I think, you know, you hear these women's stories and they all think it's just them. And it's not until you hear a mass of the stories. I mean, people are absolutely shocked when I tell them that half of the women on the Uninvisibility Project are not making a living. And they are incredible women with amazing stories who have done incredible things, are going for jobs as hotel maids or looking after dementia patients or becoming tram drivers. How can people listening get involved and, you know, even support the Uninvisibility Project? Um, go on to the website and fill in the, the pop-up box that says subscribe here. Follow us on Twitter. Uh, we're on Invisibility, um, LinkedIn, Facebook. Um, become part of the conversation, but also amplify the conversation. I mean, I've just come back from Sydney and, you know, very much telling, telling younger women that it, this is their future too and that we're not in competition with you. We're actually here to raise you. So, you know, um, there was a lovely story that came out of Sydney of one woman that had just been given a job and they just hired a 29-year-old female creative director and they'd almost done it in tandem that they put in the really cool, young, groovy female creative director. But they also made sure that there was an incredibly wise woman on her team um, that has her back and has the experience to allow her to shine. And I think, you know, I think if women start pushing that they want, you know, I think it's something like 88% of, of female creatives do not believe that they've got role models. So, you know, they should be amplifying the, the, the women, the, the few women that are out there, um, and they should be pushing. You know, again, it was like, you know, everybody blames headhunters. And I go, headhunters only go by market mm. forces. 
Um, so, you know, if headhunters get on board going, okay, we've got to go and find these unicorns. It's like, we've got to go and find these amazing creative women. And they might not want to go back into an agency, get them into mentor. I sort of say, if you, if you don't want us to make, if you don't want us to make the ads, get us to make the women that are making the ads. Because there's a whole generation of younger women that are in there facing exactly the same things that we faced. As I said, we've been your age, you've never been ours. And it was like, you know, we've got a perspective and the couldn't give a fuckery that if something is really wrong, we've, we've got no problems going and telling mm. somebody, hold, hold on it, this has to change. So, you know, it was like, I think there is a massive resource that, you know, should be treated as incredibly valuable when everybody's talking diversity and inclusion, it's like there's no point in bringing everybody in if they're just going to flounder or, worse still, just become pawns of the patriarchy. I wonder how, how this has crept into your role as a, as a mum. I imagine your teenage daughters must just look up to you even more than, than daughters normally do look up to their mums. The worst thing, the worst thing about being unemployed for three years was my kids didn't know who I was. I mean, I was unemployed. You know, my daughter was, you know, they were 14, 15. They were like that really, I hate my mum stage. So to have a mum that's out of work, um, you know, can't provide, um, you know, I, I became absolutely nothing in their eyes. And the greatest thing about the Uninvisibility Project has just been how my kids are now like, oh, oh okay I, now I see why you were fighting so hard and that you weren't taking the job at Sainsbury's and that you were you know pushing and pushing and pushing and it was like I think you know they've learned a hell of a lot from the experience but it's absolutely um you know my, my oldest daughter is a, a musician and she's like bloody hell mum you're an influencer before I am it's like, <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic and how have you found being a mum whilst doing this? Obviously, even more aware of, of the world for for young women growing up. My daughter, the first day of school last, you know, she's 17. She goes to work in business attire. She was, you know, it was, was school approved clothing, walked out of her school. She went, bloody hell, I can't even walk 20 metres out of the school without some old geezer telling me I'm sexy. And I'm just like, oh, for fuck's sake. And she's like, you know, she says to the boys, you know, the boys sort of go, oh, you know, you're just moaning all the time. And she was, you know, how often do you get catcalled? And she went two or three times a day. So, you know, it's, I just, again, I think with the young women in advertising and again with my daughters is I am absolutely appalled that, you know, we're bringing up these really strong feminist daughters and, you know, filthy, dirty old men still feel as though they've got some right to judge them on the way that they look and be vocal about it and somehow use their power over them to intimidate them. I also um, read something recently about a freelance job that you were turned down for because they wanted a young person who knew all the YouTube stars to which you rightly flagged with teenage daughters. If anyone knows them, it's, it's, it's me. I, I find it absolutely incredible that young people do not seem to realise that we're digital ambidextrous, that we actually grew up in an analogue world, but we actually saw the digital world come up. But also, you know, if you can imagine as a mother, I mean, my, do, my daughters, I remember on Twitter, I think it was like the first year Twitter came out, I put a picture of my two daughters with their laptops and everybody was like, oh my God, you know, <laughs> like get the ultimate geek girls. <laughs> but, you know, I, I've, I've, 
you know, as I say to younger people, it's like I played as much fucking pe- Club Penguin as you did. It was just I was an adult at the time looking at it going, oh, what is this? Is my child safe on this? What are the applications of that? Oh, what could you do with it? You know, it was like as things were coming in, it, was, it wasn't it was as if we were ignoring them. We we were actively, we were active participa- participants in the birth of tech. So why they think that we're tech illiterate or that we don't, again, you know, it's like, Come on, creative people. Do you honestly think that when you turn 50, you're going to have stopped looking at culture? It was like when your whole life has been about culture. It was like, what, do you just all of a sudden stop at one point and go, right, that's it, nothing ever good's ever going to happen again? I mean, yes, there are people that, you know, consider there's been nothing great since a flock of fucking seagulls. But, you know, anybody that is a creative and works in popular culture and works in advertising – knows everything that's going on everywhere because our job is is to know a little bit about a hell of a lot of things. Mm. So why on earth would that stop? I, I can't understand why people would believe that that would stop. Yeah, I, I actually think that people who grew up in an analogue world are actually at an advantage because I find myself being my grumpy, cynical guy that I'm becoming, talking to the youngsters here at GASP and uh, sometimes they, my answer to them is just fucking Google it. Like because they've grown up with Google, they don't realise how something as simple as just that one example in the digital space. You just think I think you can do and learn and know so much so quickly. But because that's been how it's always been to them, they almost see it in a different way. It's not. It's not. Um, it's not deemed as powerful as I think it, it is. Oh look, you know, I, I I grew up with you know watching Star Trek in black and white. And, you know, it was like, I remember when I was over in Australia, I spoke to like an old boyfriend back in England on Skype for the first time. And we're both just sort of like sitting there with our mouths open, sort of going, wow, can you believe this actually happened? (laughs) (laughs) It's like, whoa, you know, when we were 18, would you have thought that like in 30, in 20 years time, we'd be like sitting opposite sides of the world looking at each other talking on a video i mean it's mind-blowing how much the world has changed and again that's one of the things i'm sort of saying about is our group is is like we've seen so much change why on earth do you think we're not prepared to see more or you know have the ability to create more again it's like beyond me as to why you would think that at this point in our lives we're redundant when we're actually going this is the most powerful time in my life and also why would you not think that was hugely valuable to you that we have seen and lived through so much change but also you know I mean I, I sort of make the analogy of like vinyl records and when we all grew up with vinyl records um, you know, then we moved it over to tapes and then we moved it to CDs and then it went to streaming. And now, you know, millennials are buying vinyl again because there was actually something really magical and tactile about about it. And, you know, the, 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 you know, the quality was different, but you had the artwork and, you know, it was the collectability of it. And so, you know, again, I think I think sometimes when people create that creating this new world, they sometimes forget the absolute joy of the real world. And I think we can also bring that in very strongly. I mean, it might be a bit of a stretch, but I think um, something else that you said on your floppy dicks post on the Janie website, which is that logic doesn't sell. I think that's almost someone trying to distill something down into the logical part. And 
I'm probably not articulating that very well, but a good example Rory Sutherland gives um, in his anti-logic debates is it's like taking out a hotel uh, doorman and replacing him with an automatic door. You think you fixed the problem, made it cheaper and cut your overheads, but actually you lose all of the extra stuff the doorman did. It's all the hat tipping and the hello and the just relationships that were built. And I think that's probably true with streaming. Uh, somewhere along the line, you think if you strip everything back and it's just the music, as you said with vinyl, where you've lost that tactile thing that everyone loves and you've lost the artwork that's associated with it. There's so much more to it than just that track. And putting the record on the deck. Yeah, yeah, all of that. And, you know, there was, there was something that, that you know, I think... I, I think, you know, because we've seen so much humanity, it was like we can, you know, be absolutely awe-inspired by the new technology, but also actually understand the real joy of of, of doing something yourself too. Um, you know, it's like I, I love calligraphy and it was like, you know, people look at my handwriting and it was like, oh, you know, it was like – I wish I could teach everybody to do handwriting. It was like the joy of being able to write beautifully is like something that's being lost, you know. So I think we can see things that are being lost. Yeah. And, you know, uh, uh, and I think, you know, I think really important human emotional things, um, you know, I think we we, we bring a, a different perspective in. I also think that, you know, sort of, I mean, they talk about wisdom, um, and I, I, I speak to the women a lot about what they think wisdom is. And one of the best descriptions I ever had was you start to see the patterns, but then you start seeing the patterns laying on top of the patterns. And then you see another pattern laying on top of that pattern. And it's like you just have such a much wider view of the world. Um, and so, you know, you, you then when you get a problem or, you know, a brief or whatever, it was like you can just see it in multi dimensions that, you know, you couldn't have seen at 30 or 20 or even 40. Um, I have a couple of listener questions, Jane. Which, do you mind me Ooh, okay. throwing those at you? Yeah, go for it. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger, but that's not stopped us asking. So Louise asks, or she says, I read that you said that post the 1991 recession was when advertising ceased to be fun. Why is that? And can the fun return? Um, I think I answered that earlier. It was Martin Sorrell. Yes, it was. You're right, you're fair. The money men came in and we became a commodity rather than prized possessions. I really do think that that was really what sort of turned it around. Um, you know, and, and, you know, it was like where money t- hit it everywhere, you know, especially in education. It was like, you know, we all went to art school. We were the kids at the back of the class. We were the class clowns, um, you know, and there were four colleges. We were all given a job straight out of, out of out of work we were valued from the day we started and we were invested in from the day that we started um i think it's all become way too much of a competition and that takes so much fun out of it yeah and and can the fun return then do you think yeah absolutely but I, as as I was once told when I was telling some managing director how he should run his company, well, this is a big ship. It takes a long time to turn around. Um, so the big ships are going to take a long time to turn around. But I I think there are so many opportunities out there to do your own shit 
that you yeah. know if the boats aren't turning fast enough for you get on the speed boats because i think there's plenty of speed boats out there at the moment and you know i think clients are going to start to realize that you know that they're going to start looking at the gig economy too and they're going to start going hold on a minute i don't need to have this big monolith that's not in touch with the times i can go to these smaller little little places that can are, are far more agile because the world's too, it's too fast for too many processes now it's like you need to work with really good people that know their shit and that you trust yeah but i'm always keen to bang the small independent drum for sure makes a lot of sense i think there's a, i think there's i think there's trouble in network size anyway um, i mentioned my brother andrew earlier he's got he's got out of the business now he's had enough of it but he was very senior at one of the big networks and some of the stories i heard about how business decisions were being made um, I found alarming to say the least. Uh, so the second question from Danny. Danny says, you've helped sell a lot of beer in your time. What current beer brands do you think are acing it? Um, I'm especially curious of your view on the Carlsberg self-deprecating U-turn. Um, I think that the current beer ads have fallen into a trap, which was something that was a massive, massive, massive no-no to us for our whole career. If we ever, half of the ads, if we'd ever presented them to our creative directors, we would have been sent out with the tails between our legs. So, you know, um, I actually worked on Carlsberg, um, you know, back in the 80s when it was, you know, probably the greatest lager in the world. Um, and then to, you know, they've been slaughtered by craft beer because you know it's it's the whole story they they all got too big they all got too bland they all got too complacent um you know smaller breweries came in with interesting really great tasting beer um and it's taken them what well, we've created ours in 19 well, we released ours in 1999 so it's taken them almost 20 years to work out that oh shit you know our stuff is swill we better do something about it um but you know, but for me, it's like they're they're they're, they're letting the, the briefs are showing, the strategies are showing, the research is showing. I mean, the punk IPA. This is not a fucking ad. It was like, no, it's not, <laughs> and it's not punk in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> so yeah, I I I think it's 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 got very formulaic, and you know, again, I think you know, strategy is showing too much, and. Um, so no, I can't think of any beer brand at the moment that's doing anything really interesting because I think it's sort of got to the stage where, I mean, it was really fun doing craft beers at the start, but it's sort of getting to the point where it was like, everybody seems to be copying what's been done before. And this sort of feels as though that it, it, the, there's time for the next breakout product or breakout category. It sort of seems to be coming to a critical mass at the moment. So I think it's going to take something pretty amazing to break through it. The final part of the interview, Jane, is our four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests. So question one is, what advice would you give to your younger self, apart from uh, hiding some of the, the cash from the uh, shed on the golf course from your parents? <laughs> I know a hell of a lot more from the ex-husband. Um, <laughs> um, what would, um, it is be yourself. Um, and fight for your voice, um, particularly um, now that agencies and the world is 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 trying so hard to do diversity. There is no point in coming into an industry and turning into the same voice as the rest of the industry. It's like you know, bring your stories, bring your humanity, and bring yourself to the work. Yeah, bring all your flaws and everything. Yeah, and you know, and and 
I mean, I look back and it's like, you know, I look at some of the things that I've done in my life and some of them seem like they're massive howlers and really bad decisions. But every decision either became an incredible learning opportunity or a golden opportunity that I would never have seen. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at the time you can be going through go through things and really beat yourself up that you've done something wrong. But ultimately, it's like those mistakes are really important. And, you know, I, I, you sort of get to a point of like, like, you know, I ended up at the food bank and I remember sort of sitting there going, okay, how did I end up here? All right, this is weird. Okay, wasn't expecting this. Um, and then I looked around and first of all, I realized I was the only woman in there with a full set of teeth. Um, and the second thing was I realized that I was the only woman in there that could get out. And so, you know, if you find yourself in a situation is almost like everything changes. It was like nothing stays the same. So even if you were at the lowest of the low, you know it can't get any worse and things will get better. And, you know, things will come across that you you just had never, ever expected or planned for. Perfect. Um, number two, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would that be and why? Gag orders. I It is absolutely heartbreaking to see incredibly talented, strong, amazing women who are haunted by experiences that they can't share. Um, you know, a couple of the women that I've spoken to, you know, one of them was like, you know, my therapist is like, I've got to deal with this, but I can't because I can't even say that I've got a gag order against me. Um, you know, there's, there's another woman like in Sydney, there, there, there is, there is one human being that basically almost every single woman has a story against. And, you know, they have put out gag order after gag order after gag order after gag order. And, you know, it was like, this is Harvey Weinstein predator type thing. And, you know, he's still seen as one of the leaders in the industry. And I just, you know, and when you, when you, when you know the damage that they have done to these women, I just, I, 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 you know, if, 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 if I ever meet you and I slap you around the face, it's because I've heard a Me Too story about you. That's a great answer. Number three, Jane, are there any books that you would recommend to our listeners? Um, Business as Unusual by Anita Roddick. I think the world has forgotten about Anita. Anita was the founder of The Body Shop. Um, A few months ago, The Body Shop announced that they were recycling their packaging, of which every woman our age went, what? What, When did they stop? It was like, wasn't that what the whole they were built on? Um, And, you know, it was like Anita Roddick was the original environmental warrior, um, I think everything that she had to say then has is, is still absolutely 100% as true today. Um, her, her famous quote is credited to the Dalai Lama, but, you know, she was like, if you think you're too small to make a difference, try sleeping with a mosquito. <laughs> I've not heard that before. That's lovely. No, she's, she's absolutely fantastic. And her thoughts on ageing and skincare are invaluable for every young woman who should read it. Um, and stop um, before they even start buying anti-aging things. Just think about it and put the rest of your money in your pension and don't waste your money because none of it works. It's all bullshit. Yeah, it's all some sort of placebo going on there. Yes. Um, I've heard rumours of the Uninvisibility book. Is Are those rumours true? There is a book and a documentary and another very huge surprise in the works. So... It's we're in we're in negotiations at the moment, but it's um yes, much fun and uh frivolity and uh 
yeah, we just got to get the we've just got to get the final few bucks over the line, and we're on our way. Amazing, and so presumably people who subscribe at Uninvisibility at the, the website itself will will be able to uh, keep an eye there. Uh, if you subscribe, you'll get our monthly newsletter, which will tell you all the things that we're up to before anybody else finds out about it. Amazing. So. Before we can leak it on this podcast. Yeah, you can leak it as much as you want. I'll, <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll give you a call beforehand when the, any of you are coming. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. Well, Jane, um, we always dedicate every show to somebody um, and we like to bestow or hospital pass that honour, depending on your view, to our guests who has to give their reason why. So, Jane, could you dedicate this episode to somebody? I'm going to dedicate this episode to a woman by the name of Verna Wilkins. Um, and Verna Wilkins came and moved next door to me in Camberley and Surrey in the late eight, or in like the early 80s, I believe. And she was the most beautiful Grenadian princess you've ever seen in your life. Um, and uh, when her child came home from school one day, she'd he'd done a painting of himself and he'd painted his skin pink. And she was like, why did you paint your skin pink? And he said, because it's for a book and only white people are in books. Oh, and she started from her kitchen table, England's first diverse multicultural publishing company. And she fought and got her books into every school and on the curriculum throughout the UK. And she has been my mentor and inspiration my whole life. Wow. <clears throat> what a what a woman. Well this well this episode is very, very proudly dedicated to Verno Wilkins. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well thank you so much for joining us, Jane. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk. Uh, we'll share everything that we've discussed, especially links to the Uninvisibility Project and your own website and Anita Ruddock's book. But how else can people get more Jane Evans? Um, oh, look, I've, I, I was actually worrying the other day that everybody's getting too much Jane Evans. <laughs> <laughs> well, they can decide that. <laughs> um, uninvisibility.com, uh, Twitter, Uninvisibility, Facebook, Uninvisibility. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn as Janie London or the Uninvisibility page on, on LinkedIn. We're on Instagram. So we're out there, honey. <laughs> yeah. You're only a Google away. <laughs> Amazing. Well, um, actually, I haven't checked that because with a name like Jane Evans, it's actually quite hard to get to the top. So I must. I haven't actually. I haven't actually googled my name for a while. I should go and see. Uh, well, I've done that recently. Actually, there are there are quite a few of you out there. I mean, you're all very different. Oh, I- don't get me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but thank you so much, and thank you to everyone listening. Please continue to share and review. That means a lot to us here. And keep questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, simply find GASP online. You can check out CTA pod on Instagram or just email us at hello at calltoaction.co. And I try, and I try, and I try.